How much did regular use of Vioxx for long periods of time increase the risk of heart attack? What is the risk of suicide with the SSRIs in select patient populations? The answers can only come through a robust system for monitoring post-marketing drug safety. Yet the new regulations being considered by the FDA and Congress may not be a prescription for improved safety. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. Today we will be discussing post-marketing drug surveillance with our guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is a practicing internist and former deputy commissioner of the FDA for Medical and Scientific Affairs. He has also served as a senior policy advisor at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Dr. Gottlieb is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. In the past year, he has written several opinion pieces regarding healthcare that have appeared in the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Scott. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. We're pleased to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about risk maps? Uh, this has to do with how the FDA attempts to uh, regulate uh, some of the more dangerous uh, drugs, and this whole concept of risk maps is a bit foreign to me, and I think many in our audience. Right. So there's new legislation that was just passed that was supposed to give the agency some additional tools to help ensure drug safety. And among the various elements of this legislation is, one, the authority for the FDA to acquire drug companies to do certain post-market safety studies, two, increased funding and apparatus for the agency to actually collect post-market data from either epidemiological data sets or from um, an active surveillance system like what the FDA has when it comes to medical devices or vaccines where it goes out and actively collects information about potential safety signals rather than relying on passive reports filed by doctors and companies as it currently does from its MedWatch system. And the third element of this uh, drug safety legislation is something called risk maps. Now, historically, the agency has used what it calls risk management plans around the approval of certain drugs that it feels have very extraordinary binary risks associated with them, where if the physicians who prescribe the drug took certain steps in how they prescribe the drug, they can mitigate those risks. So, for example, drugs that have a risk of causing birth defects often need to be prescribed in the company of certain restrictions on who can get the drug or what kind of testing needs to be done before the drug is made available. So, for example, thalidomide requires doctors to conduct pregnancy tests for patients and requires doctors to make sure patients are self-certifying to using certain forms of contraception. Accutane, another drug that causes birth defects, has similar requirements put in place around its provision. Drugs that could cause an immediate risk of allergic reaction, anaphylaxis, often have requirements that doctors monitor patients for a certain period of time after administration of the drug. The agency has used these risk management plans in about 30 cases in all, historically. And what it has done is it's required sponsors to voluntarily agree to put these requirements in place and and enforce them on physicians. Now, what the legislation does is it requires the agency to consider a risk map for every single drug. The agency is obviously very unlikely to use these kinds of restrictive measures on every single drug, but the the practical effect of the legislation is that you will see the agency starting to employ these tools more commonly, and the agency for the first time now has the legal authority to require this. So before these risk management plans needed to be the result of a voluntary agreement between the drug company and the agency, oftentimes drug companies would enter into these voluntary agreements because it was the only way they could get their drugs in the market. Now the agency is going to have the authority to require companies to do this. And so companies are going to agree to do it or be required to do it, and then their companies are going to have to figure out how to enforce it, which is probably going to mean enforcing it on doctors and and requiring doctors to take certain steps, with the only recourse really being that they would deny doctors the right to prescribe a drug if doctors didn't comply with it. Well, this is all a little confusing to me. How can the drug companies 
really restrict access to their prescriptions. There, there's going to be like the pharmacists are going to have to check an approved doctor list. I mean, I don't, I don't understand that. I think that's the question that everyone's asking. You know, these risk management plans have been used in such a small number of cases and oftentimes with very specialized products that the physicians have been agreeable to the restrictions, although sometimes the restrictions that have been put in place from the clinical standpoint haven't really made as much sense. And so in the case of Accutane, there's been a lot of concern among dermatologists that the risk management plan is very intrusive and burdensome and doesn't necessarily address the goals that it's set out to address. And in fact, the number of um, exposed pregnancies, as we would say, the number of people who are becoming pregnant while taking Accutane really hasn't changed, even after the risk management plan in that case has been ratcheted up in terms of how, how restrictive it is. But what's likely to evolve is, you know, there'll be cases where these risk management plans will be put in place, sometimes over the objection of the companies, sometimes over the objection of providers who might not think that the risk management plans really are mitigating the risk that they are intended to address. And so the only way to enforce compliance is to probably distribute the drug through a very discrete channel, which in an, obviously in a fragmented supply chain for drugs is going to be hard. So maybe through a single PBM, a single pharmacy benefit manager, or distribute it through a single specialty pharma company. And someone's going to probably need to go in, and if there are certain requirements that physicians need to be either doing or self-certifying to, someone's going to need to audit that. I suspect the drug companies won't want to be in the business of auditing physicians, and so what they'll do is they'll outsource this work to contract researchers who will literally, in some cases, probably go in and make sure doctors are, are you know, giving certain informed consent if that's the requirement of the risk management plan or recording certain information or taking certain steps with patients. You know, it might be something like a survey tool that they might administer to doctors. They might actually go in and audit records, or in some cases they might even send in phantom patients to make sure doctors are taking certain steps or, or giving patients certain instructions or tools. I think that the, the, how the compliance aspect of it, how the checking aspect is going to evolve is a little unclear, but what I can tell you is that once Congress gives a federal agency, a regulatory agency, the legal authority to put in place certain requirements to help promote public safety, in this case the risk management plans, the FDA, the, the regulatory authority, is going to need to audit compliance with that. They can't simply say, we're putting in place these 30 risk management plans and we're not going to check if the companies are complying with it. They're going to need to check for compliance. and. So that means the companies are going to need to check for compliance with their physicians. And so the auditing function, the compliance function, I think is going to evolve and could become, you know, for the medical practice environment, quite tricky and maybe problematic. Uh, I, I have to tell you, as a private practitioner, this sounds like really, really, really bad. If a risk map has to be considered for every medication, and so the drug companies, as they develop drugs, now have to contemplate possibly being burdened with uh, a risk map with all the attendant problems that we'll discuss, won't that change uh, the mathematics of, uh, or the economics, I should say, of drug development? Well, certainly it does. I mean, uh, a risk map could be something as simple as a commitment by the sponsor to collect certain post-market information. The kinds of risk maps I think that I'm most concerned about from a public health standpoint is risk maps that put certain burdens on physicians in terms of the prescribing. So they pose certain requirements on how doctors prescribe a drug, when they can prescribe it, who they can prescribe it to. Because I think those start to encroach on medical practice and are really the regulation of medical practice. Now, historically, when those kinds of risk maps have been put in place, the risk maps that impose burdens on the medical practice environment on physicians, when they have been put in place, it has increased the cost of the drug. So a classic example is Tisabri, a drug for multiple sclerosis, which was originally approved without a risk map and then withdrawn from the market when certain risks were identified with the drug, and it was reintroduced to the marketplace with a very restrictive risk map 
putting in place a lot of requirements in terms of what physicians needed to do. And when it was reintroduced, the, the price of the drug went out astronomically. I mean, it went up an order of magnitude from the original price because of the cost of complying with these risk maps. From a public health standpoint, I think the problems with the risk maps, in my view, are best epitomized by a drug called Simlin, which is a drug for diabetes, which was approved a couple of years ago with a risk map in place. And Simlin's an interesting drug. It's, it's made by a company called Amulet Pharmaceuticals in San Diego, a small biotech company co-marketed by Lilly. I have no involvement with the drug um, other than to be familiar with it. And it's an interesting drug because it, it promotes weight loss, and it works by being an insulin sensitizer. So you use it in conjunction with insulin to potentiate the effects of insulin. But one of the problems with the drug, one of the difficulties of prescribing it, is it has a narrow therapeutic margin. So if you prescribe too much insulin in conjunction with Simlin, you can cause dangerously low blood sugar. And in fact, when you looked at the clinical trial data, there was a car accident from a patient who had become hypoglycemic while taking Simlin in the clinical trial. So FDA was nervous about approving this drug, that it might be misprescribed and cause episodes of dangerous hypoglycemia, and they actually had issued two or I think three approvable letters. They basically three times deferred on approving this product, and then they finally agreed to approve it. And they agreed to approve it after Amelin agreed to a very restrictive risk management plan that, among other things, required that anyone who prescribes this drug has to have a nurse diabetes educator on staff. Now, you can ask yourself, why would they put in place such a requirement? Does a nurse diabetes educator mean that patients are going to become more educated about the product and perhaps use it more safely? Perhaps, you know, perhaps, but certainly any, any nurse who's trained in diabetology or any nurse in the general internist office could provide the same training for patients. I think the practical effect of putting in place that requirement was to make sure that the only people who prescribed this drug were diabetologists and endocrinologists, specialists. And so the agency effectively took the drug out of the hands of general practitioners and put it in the hands of specialists with such a requirement, which was probably, at least on some level, what some folks wanted to achieve. Now, from a public health standpoint, the problem with that is, as we all know, Many diabetics, and especially diabetics in the inner city or in rural environments, don't get their care from specialists, might never see a diabetologist, might never have access to a diabetologist. They get their care from general internists like me. And so putting in place requirements like that, putting in place risk maps that push drugs into the hands of super specialists, basically creates obstacles for patients who I think already face significant obstacles getting access to the latest innovative care. I want to thank Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a resident fellow of the American Enterprise Institute, who has been our guest. We have been discussing post-marketing drug surveillance. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We would really like to hear from you. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. You can hear podcasts of this and other programs as well as get show schedules on our website at reachmd.com. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening.